Last time, uh, the, sort of, I spoke uh, to the adults. Um, we started this brand new series, and we're looking um, at rather than a book or a, uh, a period of time, we're looking at questions that God asks us that we find in scripture. We can often find ourselves having lots of questions about God and expecting his replies and expecting him to come back to us when we ask why this or why that. Um, and it is very common for us, even when our questions are answered, when God replies, when scripture comes forth, when prophecy uh, replies, when the wisdom of a believer uh, gives us an um, answer, we can be irrepressible in not enjoying that, but then going on to the next question, in, in, in always going, well, why this, why that? Now you've answered that one, I want to know why this other thing is going on. And instead of us constantly challenging God of why he doesn't measure up, of why he doesn't reply to some ill-defined uh, question or badly thought through query, I want us to hear over this series the challenges that God makes of us. Last time we looked at the first question God ever asked when Adam and Eve sinned and he asked them, so where are you? You're hiding from me. Why are you doing that? And we looked at that last time. And this week, we're going to look at the first ever recorded question of his son, Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. And it says this in verse 44. Every year... His parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast, according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed, amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mum said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then in verse 49, Jesus replies. 12-year-old Jesus replies to his parents with this. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Every year, it seems, Luke tells us, Joseph and Mary heads off to the geographical centre of their faith. They head off to Jerusalem, this holy city. They head off to the temple where the Passover feast is remembered. And I really hope you remember some of the uh, points of the Passover that we looked up 
uh, in the Exodus story when we looked um, at the life of Moses because some of that bleeds through in so many different occasions. The uh, annual Passover feast was this uh, uh, rem reminder of what God had done through Moses, of what God had done for the people of Israel, what God had done against the uh, unbelieving host of Egyptians. And it was a time to um, eat, a time to satisfy uh, your appetite, a time for stories. It was a time for questions. It was a time where children were invited in to play a part in the sort of uh, religious proceedings. And it was a time of personal devotion. This uh, annual Passover feast was just full of uh, a religious richness uh, uh, that they uh, just enjoyed each time. And Luke tells us that he is caught up in the holy habit of his parents. His, the holy habit of his parents was to visit Jerusalem each and every year as part of the Passover, to put their lives on hold and head to Jerusalem, to leave behind their business and their housework, to leave behind all the worries and concerns of daily life and go into Jerusalem and remind themselves of this ancient moment of Passover. And Jesus is left in no doubt how important this religious observer observation is. He is told by his parents, by their year in, year out pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that um, their faith is dear, that it is worth pushing everything aside, that it is worth going into community again and appreciating what God had done and um, doing that thing that God told them to do each year. God had instructed them, do this regularly to remind yourselves of the providence and grace and mercy of your heavenly Father. And by doing this, uh, Mary and Joseph were telling Jesus what was important in life. Now, there's a famous Russian uh, Christian author, and he once wrote this. It seems, in fact, as though the second half of a man's life is made up of nothing but the habits he accumulated during the first half. I wonder how you feel about that. I wonder when you feel that moment uh, of uh, first half of your life is over and then your second half is just the habits that you've acquired during the first half. And I think that speaks into this situation. Our holy habits are important. What we do in season and out of season is critical. If we treat spiritual disciplines like giving, fasting, prayer, Bible study and petition in participation in church, if we treat these things as optional extras, as things to do when we feel like it or that we have time or when there's nothing better going on, our spiritual life will be poor and erratic. We will be impoverished. Because we are not going through the motions on a regular basis. And we were just doing it when we fancy it. And when hard times come, 
when trouble comes. You don't have any well-worn paths or familiar routes to find God. If you don't do these things as holy habits, you will find you struggle when the uh, troughs of life assail you. Because you don't know how to do it by habit. But if we have daily holy habits, if we have weekly holy habits, if we have monthly and annual holy habits, important Christian disciplines, it will be fused into our routine. It will be automatic. We don't have to think about it. So when trouble comes, we find ourselves in the right places. When trouble comes, we find ourselves automatically going through scripture. We find ourselves automatically in prayer. We find ourselves automatically with the people of God. We find ourselves automatically in the places that God would encounter us. And when we do that, God goes, you're in the right place. These holy habits have led you into exactly the right place for me to minister to you. If you only do it when you fancy it, you get out of sync and out of time. And there is struggle and grief and strife. And this is why God made sure his son was given to a couple that knew what it was to have holy habits. I think this was a very deliberate thing so that Jesus knew what faith looked like. He did not give uh, um, his son to a couple that uh, only bothered to be spiritual when it suited them or nothing else was going on or uh, when uh, they thought they could afford it that they would do it. But it was uh, uh, um, sort of etched in stone in the hearts of Mary and Joseph to do these things and it was in that family that God gave Jesus to bring them up because he knew that would be important uh, structure for Jesus's life. And the same is here. Each of us, by our presence and absence in meetings and these disciplines, we tell other people, and especially our vulnerable children, what is important to us. We tell the new Christians amongst us what is important by the holy habits we keep. If we do not keep holy habits, we are teaching everyone else that it is not important to us and we can live without them. But when we do this, when we follow these holy habits in season and out of season, we make very clear um, that we're able to deal with the rough with the smooth because we have this familiar path to walk down. And we also show other people what is important in life. Really wanted to uh, give a slide of uh, a family holiday, but that would just be personal indulgence. And the rest of you would be like, well, I don't really care. Um, every year, uh, my, ha my family, uh, we head to the very same seaside 
village uh, for a holiday. You may think it's a lack of imagination, and, and probably to some extent it is. But every year we head to the exact uh, same seaside village, uh, and our kids know the place but like the back of their hand. You know, it's got like one main road through, um, and they're quite good at running right uh, in the place. And uh, Having been there so many times, they're very familiar with it. They know the, the footpaths, they know the, uh, 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 the places of interest, um, and uh, uh, they know the, uh, the good shops to go into, um, and uh, they know what to expect uh, when we head there. And, and, and this year, um, uh, we, we, each year we try and give them a little bit more freedom, a little bit more scope to go and do what they want to do. And um, uh, uh, one day uh, this, this year, while we're at this uh, seaside village, um, they came back absolutely chuffed because the shop owner um, had like acquired a fondness for them because he saw them so often and he's seen them through the years. And this shop owner, this guy, um, that uh, um, sort of took their savings up to that point, had given them a load of free sweets. Now, they were, they were pleased with the sweets that they'd bought, but they were really chuffed that they'd, uh, uh, um, they'd developed this relationship with this shopkeeper uh, in this seaside town, and he'd just given them uh, uh, a load of stuff because they were just so well behaved and he'd got on with them, and uh, it was like the, the, the choicest of confectionery for my children as they enjoyed it. Jesus, in this story, has probably been to Jerusalem 11 times before. He was probably there when he was one and two and three and four and etc. And so he's probably familiar with certain parts of Jerusalem. He's probably got the favourite parts to run off to, um, with, with his mates. He's got probably local uh, characters that he knows and made friends with and, and businesses that probably know his dad, the carpenter, uh, and businesses that know his mum, who probably has to buy uh, sort of resources there, um, and uh, just businesses that know this Jesus, who you've got to imagine had something about him that was attractive. And so he was Jesus, Jesus in Jerusalem, a town that he'd grown familiar with and perhaps uh, was uh, enjoying himself at. And then there was time to leave, you know, Passover ends, and Joseph and Mary, if holidays and camping and uh, time away at family is anything to teach us, they probably had a little bit to pack up, a little bit to marshal their resources and to sort of uh, return back home. And Jesus probably had a few brothers and sisters at this time as well. And so Mary and Joseph were tidying up, packing up, making sure that the other brothers and sisters were with them. And they were probably thinking of all the half-finished jobs that they'd left off at home. All the things that hadn't been done and were interrupted by this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Make no mistake, being faithful requires you to half-finish things. To go, you know, I'm going to interrupt this thing that needs to be done because I have a more important thing to pursue. But Mary and Joseph were now, in their minds, thinking back of all the things they have to pick up again because the Passover was over. And they were going back and they probably went back in the community they came with. 
And they know and love this wider community. They're probably people uh, that, that Jesus grew up with and, and knew almost as well as his mum and dad. And so Mary and Joseph and uh, most of their children uh, go back uh, home. And they're traveling uh, away from Jerusalem. And it's very reasonable for Mary and Joseph. I do not think that uh, this is sort of exposes Mary and Joseph as really bad parents. But just parents that were busy, they were going back home with their kids and all the other things they have in mind. And um, they assume Jesus is with one of the other families. But Jesus is not heading home. Jesus has found a home in this holy city of David. And in this holy city of David, where he's become increasingly comfortable, there is this uh, wonderful temple that Herod built. So when the exiles came out of the Babylonian exile, they uh, rebuilt the temple, and then Herod uh, made it into a grander structure. And Jesus finds himself there and finds uh, a certain enjoyment to be there. This 12-year-old, he has an appetite for truth, for faith, and for love. And it is an appetite that is insatiable. He keeps coming back to these things. He keeps wanting to know more. And so while his parents are growing anxious, where is that flipping Jesus? He is spending time with the experts in faith. He is spending time with the teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's spending time at their feet learning. And we learn from Luke that in the cool shades of the temple colonnades, Jesus listens to what is said. He hears it. He takes it in. He absorbs the truth spoken by these wise spiritual leaders. And he asks penetrating questions. It's not just taking in information but you ask questions to test it and see how true it is to see how fragile these uh, so-called truths these spiritual leaders are telling can it stand up to a measure of testing or not and he even Luke tells us he comes up with answers that impresses the adults that causes them to go wow this young lad has something to offer and some of this approach comes from these Passover traditions where they invite the children to come in and ask questions, where they go, come on, you want to know why we have this bread and wine and why we have these bitter herbs and, and why we do these religious proceedings? Ask, and we will reply. We're adults. This faith is something important to us, and we would love to tell you something of what is going on. And so perhaps encouraged by this tradition um, at Passover of asking questions, Jesus grapples with his faith and invites adults to reply with difficult questions. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. says this. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. These were to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up 
It's built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Everyone say mature. Become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants. We won't be tossed backwards and forth by the waves. We won't be blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up. Everyone say grow up. We will grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The apostle here is talking about the church and how there are particular ministries that are introduced so that the whole body is equipped to serve, so that we are equipped to be able to look after each other, so that we are able to know about our faith. And then when someone drops in something that's wrong, we know, you know what, I don't need to worry about that because I know what my faith is and what it isn't. You should find in our church meetings trustworthy guidance about the Christian faith. You should find here facts about what you believe. They might be new ones to you that you have to reconcile with what you already know, but you should find uh, uh, by what I say and others teach, find things that are helpful for you as you follow Jesus. If we take meetings like this in over the uh, weeks and months and years, we should find our faith improves. We should be able to read the Bible better because we understand it. We should be able to understand which bits of the Old Testament are pertinent now and which ones are something for, to be resigned perhaps to history. We should be able to know uh, uh, what bits are uh, critical to our faith and which we can have a little bit of grace over interpretation of. We should be able to read our Bibles with a measure of intelligence so that we can answer people when they ridicule the good book because they are confused about it. We should be able to call out to God in our prayers in ways that he delights, not in an infantile, uh, I don't like this, get me out of this trouble, but in a way that God responds to because you are a mature believer. You have someone that has grown up in your faith. You are someone that is aware of God's plan. You're aware of God's method of salvation. You are aware of his way of testing and trying people's faith. You should be able to explain why we do what we do. You should be able to explain and understand why we worship. Why do we sing songs together? Do you know why? Could you explain it to a child that asks, what on earth are you doing karaoke on a Sunday morning for? 
Can you explain why we have bread and grape juice? Can you explain why we have one loaf rather than lots of little ones? Can you explain uh, uh, the, the words in the songs? Or are you just a passive absorber and here for a nice time? Because if you are here for a nice time, you've missed the point and you are an infant in your faith. You are a child and that is not a good thing. When we are grown up in our faith, when we have taken on board sermons and truth and wisdom and knowledge, we will become proficient in our faith. We will be able to answer the probing questions of atheism because often they are very clever people, but they make uh, poor generalizations about our faith and they are mistaken in their own thinking. If they think logically through for a lot of what they say, you will find it is inconsistent and uh, just uh, impossible and it leads to destruction. You will, and this is slightly more dangerous, you will know how to reply to other faiths. You will know why Jesus is the only answer, why all the other religions are in error. You will know why clever-sounding heresies by the two Mormons that rock up on your door with their smart clothes and little name badges, you will know why they're wrong. And you don't need to be upset by them, you don't need to be disturbed by them. It's a case of, I know why uh, I follow Jesus, and I know why I read the uh, interpretation of the Bible I read. And I know how you've got to where you are because you have increased your head knowledge and wisdom and you have acquired information about Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The theologian John Stott, he's an English guy and he wrote this. Knowledge is indispensable to Christian life and Service. If we do not use the minds that God has given us, we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality. We cut ourselves off from the many riches of God's grace. There are so many in this world that are sunk by doubt and confusion, and it is because they, uh, uh, um, they, they do not know how to ask questions properly, they do not know how to think through facts clearly, um, and they haven't been taught the proper truth. But we should be different. We shouldn't be sunk by doubt and confusion because we have been told again and again clear biblical truths that hold together and create a worldview that can hold you in the hardest times, that can hold you when all else goes to pot, can hold you when all sorts of clever people come up with flowery language and impressive credentials. We know why we believe what we believe and we can talk about it clearly. In these times of doubt and confusion and sort of mental sickness and everything else, we should be able to maintain a sense of buoyancy and being able to stay on course because of what we've been taught by reliable men.
and women. This is uh, uh, Westminster Chapel. So when I was at university, I got to uh, uh, go there for a year. Um, and this is, I think it's Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old school preacher, uh, a really clever guy, and used to fill this place up on Friday evenings for his Bible studies. So, um, it, and he, it took like 20 years to go through the book of Romans. Uh, um, and uh, uh, so um, that's what the, the church background is. So we've looked at the holy habits of Joseph and Mary. And we've looked at how Jesus deliberately uh, sought out a faith that filled his heart and mind. And I want us to consider those first recorded words of Jesus. These are the first recorded words of Jesus on this planet. And what does he do? He answers back to his parents with two searching questions. Jesus doesn't seem to have much sympathy for his mum and dad who were getting all anxious and frantic. Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus. I'm not going to point out a 12-year-old in our uh, Sunday school. But 12-year-old Jesus says to Mary and Joseph, Mary, uh, who'd been... who'd met an angel announcing uh, the birth of her son. Joseph, who was a carpenter, uh, who had also had uh, an angelic encounter and had dreams and had fled Herod's persecution. Jesus says to his parents, godly, God-fearing parents who, uh, uh, who are uh, uh, really good in following their faith, he goes, you should have known exactly where to find me. All this anxiousness, you've made it up. You should have known exactly where to find me. You should have known my passions and energies are for my heavenly Father. You should have known, it should have been long logical to you, mum and dad, that this is where I would be in the temple courts. You should know that I love my Father, heavenly Father, more than anything. And all I want to do is know more about him and uh, feed off other people's wisdom. You should have known that this is where I'd be. All your anxiousness, it was pointless. You should have thought it through. You know who I am. Those angels have told you. You know what my purpose is. You should have known. Your anxiety was because you didn't think. Odds are there are folk here this morning who are trying to find Jesus. Some of us may have a faith that's a little stale or a little mechanical. You know, we've developed these holy habits, but they're a little hollow. And uh, we don't keep, uh, uh, we don't find the vibrant faith that perhaps we once had. Some of us may be struggling with a particular issue. You know, our faith is fine and then we've hit a hiccup and because uh, uh, the information and knowledge and wisdom of, of scripture and teaching isn't being brought to mind, we are looking around wildly going, Jesus, where are you? This has came out of the blue and I am struggling, man. You need to uh, uh, stand up. It is very common for the believer 
in their hearts to go, where are you, Jesus? I thought I knew where you were, but where are you now? And Jesus' answer now is the same as it's always been. I'm exactly where you'd expect to find me. I haven't moved. I haven't changed my mind. I haven't changed my priorities. I haven't thought better of an idea I had yesterday. Jesus says I'm exactly where you would expect to find me. If you've got a Bible, turn to the last passage of today, Ephesians chapter 2. It says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. You know, you're not caught off from God. You're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and their teaching and example. How important teaching and example are with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This morning, I'd like you to hear the fact that Jesus is still to be found in his father's house. But now, that is not a, on the temple mount in Jerusalem, but it, that is in his church. We are now God's temple. There is a transition. It is now not a physical building in the Middle East, but now it is a spiritual group of people that have been collected together uh, uh, with Christ as the cornerstone and the prophets and apostles uh, uh, as a basis. One of the very best places to find Jesus to be energized in your faith for him, to know joy and peace is here. It is amongst God's people. You want to know where Jesus is? He's here. Where two or three are gathered, he's here. It is here that the spirit roams. It is here that scripture is read. It is here that love is not something that we kind of employ when we feel like it, but it's the highest value. It's the thing that uh, underpins everything else. It is here that forgiveness reigns. Well, it should do. I mean, I realise uh, that we're all fallen and we struggle to get along, but it is here that we understand that forgiveness is not an optional extra, but it is an important, pivotal thing. It is here where worship resounds not recorded worship not worship done by other people that you plug into but where you come together as the people of God and lift up the roof with your voice it is here where giving away rather than accumulating is a law that we all prescribe to God's people is where Jesus is you want to know where Jesus is? You're struggling with something? You want to know where Jesus is? Come to church. You're struggling with your faith? Things are being a bit sterile or stale? Come to church. 
So many people say they need a rest. You know, they've been exhausted from all the work and all the uh, uh, commitments that they've accumulated and acquired and put on themselves. And then they inexplicably choose to take a rest from Sunday morning, the very place that Jesus says he is. It is here that we are brought out of ourselves, where we are served. Thank you, Alistair, for the cup of coffee earlier. It's where we serve others. Thank you, PA team, for putting up all the sound equipment. Thank you, Tim, for leading in worship. Thank you, uh, Rachel and Sam, for keeping the kids occupied and hopefully telling something that is far more important than they will learn in school. It's where we serve others others, where we are taken out of ourselves, where we realise that uh, what we need perhaps is not uh, more time in front of the TV, but time amongst God's people. It's here where the Spirit dwells and speaks and touches. It's here where truth resides. You're probably filling up most of your life outside of church meetings with half-truths. But here, you should find total truth. Truth that's eternal. I'm not pretending church is easy. I don't always come here with a spring in my step and a smile on my face thinking, oh, I'd love to see what the Lord's going to do for his people today. Sometimes it's a struggle. But this is where Jesus is. On a Sunday morning, it seems that most of us can commit to coming together. And, and, and so this is a start. You should be able to find Jesus in the kind words of someone near you. You should be able to find Jesus in the motivation to be kind to someone else. You should be able to find Jesus in the words that we sing and the sermon that is pronounced. You should find Jesus in the prayers of the congregation. You should be able to find Jesus in the coffee and tea time where we sit around and talk. You want to know where Jesus is? He's here. And you should look out for him. And let me tell you, Jesus is unpredictable. Sometimes he goes home with his parents. 11 out of 12 years, he'd gone home with them. This 12th year, he decided to uh, stay, give them a heart attack, and then moan at them when they challenged him. Jesus can often be unpredictable. You can come here and go, oh, I just want to bask in the presence of the Lord. And Jesus goes, no, nope, you're not going to be doing that. You're going to be humping and lifting equipment or you're going to ministering to someone who has had a wretched week and, uh, um, or you're going to do something else that takes you out of yourself. He may challenge you this morning when you wanted soothing. You've come here, oh, I've had a hard week, you know, I've done all these things. Just want to hear something affirming. God loves me, you know, he's merciful, he's got place in heaven me. That's what I need, Lord. And then you come to me with this. Jesus is unpredictable. He knows what's best for you. But let me tell you, being with Jesus is the very best place to be. It's the very best place for your souls, that eternal dimension of your being that lasts forever. Jesus is the very best person for that, and he is to be found here, so look out for him. Stay with him. Walk with him, because this, Jesus, is the only way 
that you're going to make, rate, you're going to make it to the end. Jesus is the only way that you're going to uh, run that race that he's marked out for you. Is the only way that you are not going to be uh, uh, drowned by the waves. He's the only way that stops you get knocked off course. If you do not follow Jesus, you're not going anywhere good. But if you follow him, if you pay attention to him, if you find him in his church, things are looking up. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, God, I hear, God, I pray that we hear this question of Jesus. Why are we searching for you? Because we know where you are. Lord God, I thank you that you have promised to be with your people, that you've promised to be with them to the very end of the age, that it's not something that you turn up to every now and again, but you are resident with us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would take that on board this morning. Lord God, I pray that we would develop holy habits etched into our souls, that we follow come what may, and that, Lord God, that discipline uh, would see us through the troubled times. And Lord God, I pray that we would celebrate and um, appreciate information, knowledge, and facts about you. That, Lord God, we wouldn't be here for the entertainment. We wouldn't be here to feel good. But we would be here to mature and grow up in the faith so that we can confront the people that don't know what they're talking about and help the people that are lost and struggling. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.